As the offering is being collected, I'm, I want to say how grateful I am for the privilege of being here at First Baptist Church. Uh, this is my first Sunday here. Well, actually, I was here last Sunday, but um, it's my first Sunday preaching here. And thank you for the privilege of, of serving as, as the transition pastor here at the church. Um, my, my task is, is to be used of God, hopefully, here as this church looks for and looks forward to the new pastor that God is going to provide for this body. And uh, that's obviously something about which uh, we need to keep praying. And uh, it's a very important step for this church and, a, and one that uh, we trust will be a great, great step forward for this body. I don't know if you know, but uh, if you think about any life or anything on this planet, almost everything is a cycle. If you ask someone to chart their life, uh, nobody who's ever lived goes like this. No one. There's never been an organization in the history of the world that goes like this. Never. There's really nothing in life that goes like this. And interestingly, life doesn't go like this either. It usually goes like this. Almost all of life is about cycles. You know that if you went to science class. You probably know about the water cycle. The water, of course, um, evaporates and then it condenses and then we have rain or snow here in Wyoming and then goes back to the earth and it evaporates again and on and on it goes. You know how frogs are made. They start off as eggs, then they go to tadpoles, into the water, grow tail, uh, the tail leaves them, they grow legs, then they come up and that's another cycle we know a lot about. We are a cycle, as this one shows. Start off as a baby and eventually, well, you know what happens. You start eating, uh, you eat foods that are uh, liquid and you end up eating foods that are liquid at the end again. <laughs> you start out in diapers and you know what happens. Um, life is a cycle. It goes in cycle. And his, uh, any economist, if you take a social study class or any class in a college or university, you'll know that economics is a cycle. It, it, uh, this one, of course, goes like this. They didn't quite put it in a circle, but things are circular. They go around and around. Um, politics. Uh, as we know, we go from one party to the next party to the next party. People get angry, and then they, they completely change the government, and then they change it back, and it goes in cycles over and over again. I don't know if you're familiar with this. This is called the Titler cycle, and maybe you've seen the longer version of it. This is the short version. Here, I'll read the longer one for you. It says, this is what happens to human beings and human institutions. We go from bondage to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith to great courage, from courage to liberty, and from liberty to abundance, and from abundance to leisure. From leisure we go to selfishness, and from selfishness to complacency, and from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependency, from dependency to weakness, and from weakness, bondage. That's every civilization. They say civilizations last about 200 years, the best of them, and they go through this cycle and maybe you get a privilege of going through the cycle several times. There are political cycles. But I don't know if you know, there are cycles in the Bible. There's a whole book of the Bible, the book of Judges, that is built around a cycle that happens seven times in the book. Over and over again, the exact same thing happens in the history of the nation of Israel. The people, God provides a leader, a good leader, a strong leader, a judge. 
And then the people experience a period of peace and prosperity, but peace and prosperity always leads to apathy and indifference. And apathy and indifference leads to distancing ourselves from God. And when we distance ourselves from God, we often get involved in things that have negative consequences. They hurt us. And God is responsible because he's a holy, just God to discipline us. And when we're disciplined by God, it hurts. And when we, it hurts, you cry. And when you cry, God hears. And when God hears, he does something. And he raises up another judge to lead them out of the bondage into which they got themselves. And the cycle continues again and again and again. That's the book of Judges. But churches have cycles too. Um, this church has a long history, but this is not how the history of First Baptist Church has gone. And that's not the way that any church in the history of the world has ever gone. Every single church that's ever existed goes like this. Sometimes like this, like a toilet. Hopefully not. But churches have cycles as well. It's just a part of life. Now, life tends to be circular, cyclical. It's not linear. And so one of the great challenges of life is to recognize where you are in the cycle and then to take wherever it may be corrective action so that the cycle isn't really big, but they're small. You get to the place of God's favor and blessing quickly rather than having to go a very, very long route to get back there again. Because God is in the business of us being a healthy body. And so today we're going to look at the life cycle of a church in the Bible. There's one church, I don't know if you know this, about which about a third of the whole New Testament is written to or from. There's only one church. This is the greatest church that's ever existed and ever will exist in the face of the planet Earth. There's no other possibility. I'll tell you why. Because there's no church that has ever existed or ever can exist that has had greater leaders than this church. This church had as its leaders the following people. Paul, Timothy, Apollos, Priscilla, Aquila. In the pews was Mary, John. All of those were in one church. It's the greatest church that has ever existed or ever will exist in the history of the planet. You could never have greater people than those. Can you imagine standing up here, Timothy, a young man, and there in the, well, no one sits in a first row in, the, in a Baptist church, I know. But, so, um, in the third row, there's the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine? And Jesus' best friend, John, here, he's sitting right there. Would that be, talked about being nervous, Ron. Can you imagine Mary and John sitting there? If you got something wrong about Jesus, man, you're in trouble. His mom's there. So that, this is the church of Ephesus. Now, interestingly, we know a 65-year span of the life of this church. It's all included for us in the Bible. And so now we can see the cycle of this one church over 65 years, and we can see what the cycle looked like and what God did with this church during this cycle. 
And so my hope over the next um, several months, Lord willing, is to lead us through the epistle of Paul to the Ephesians. It is the most important book in the entire Bible about the church, what the church is, what the church is all about, how the church should function. And I thought the best way to introduce it would be to show you the cycle, the 65-year cycle or history of the church of Ephesus. This is not from history. It's from the Bible. So it all begins with, of course, the gospel. The gospel first came to the church of Ephesus around the year 30 A.D. The C there, of course, means circa, approximately. We don't know exactly when Jesus died. We don't know exactly when the Pentecost took place. But it's around the year 30 A.D. the church began. How do we know? Well, we know from Acts chapter 2. Listen as I read. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven, when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? How then is it that each of us hears them speak in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia. Now, Asia is in that time, it's called Asia Minor. Asia Minor is the western portion of what today we call Turkey. And Asia's main city was Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the largest and most important cities in the entire world. It's probably within the top four cities in size in the whole world at that time. They estimate about uh, 250,000 people. And remember, there's only one city in the entire world that was over a million people. That's Rome. And if I'm not mistaken, and you historians can check this out for me, you can Google it, the second city in the history of the world that became a million people was London. So a city of 250,000 was enormous in the ancient world. And so the Bible tells us that at Pentecost, there were some people from Asia Minor, which would have been some people from Ephesus, who were there when the Holy Spirit came and the church was formed. They were there. They heard these people like Peter and Andrew and, 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 and John speaking languages they had never learned. And they realized God was doing something new. And they were there. And some of those people, they were Jewish people who were there in Jerusalem for Pentecost. They went back to Ephesus. And what did they do? Well, they started telling people the good news about Jesus. That the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, because remember, they're Jewish. The Jewish Messiah that the Old Testament had promised had come. His name is Jesus. He was crucified by our religious leaders, but God raised him from the dead. He is the Messiah. He is our King. He is our Lord. And so now the first fruits of the gospel started to take root inside of Ephesus. The gospel, as you know, simply means good news. And you're going to hear this from me, and I hope you don't get sick of it, but you will hear it many times from me. Christianity is unique of all world religions. There is nothing even remotely close to it in many, many ways, and one of the main ways is this. Christianity is primarily history. It is not some person in a cave saying they got revelations from God. 
It is not some person under a tree figuring out how you become enlightened. It is not some person in, a, in China who looks at life and comes up with wise sayings. Christianity is primarily history. It is news. It is not somebody's religious views. It is not some muse in a cave. Christianity is history. Something happened that can be historically documented and verified on this planet. There was a person who lived here who died on a cross, very well substantiated, and he walked out of a grave. That's pretty unique. History, his, Christianity is news. Something happened that has profound implications for us and all human beings. So the, so the church began with news. It began with the gospel. But then, the Apostle Paul, on what's called his second missionary journey, he made a visit to the church in Ephesus. It was a very brief visit. We know it take, took only a, a matter of a few days. Let me read what the Bible says. This is Acts chapter 18, verses 18 to 21. After this, Paul stayed many days longer in Corinth. This is written from Corinth. After this, Paul stayed many days longer in Corinth and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Cancrea, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow and they came to Ephesus and he left them there but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So the Apostle Paul came to this very major city and had a very, very brief visit. And what he always did when he went to a city is he first went to a synagogue because he's Jewish. And he knew that the Jewish people knew the Old Testament and he knew that the Jewish people were looking for a Messiah and he went there to tell them that the Messiah had come and who the Messiah was. With him was Priscilla and Aquila. Now Priscilla and Aquila were a couple that were from um, Rome but they had been kicked out of Rome by the emperor and Suetonius, the Roman, the Roman historian, tells us that the Jews were kicked out of Rome because of one called Christus. So probably what happened, almost all historians would agree, there was a conflict in Rome among the Jewish population. Some believed that Jesus was the Christ. Others believed he was not the Christ. They fought against each other, and the emperor said, Get out, all of you. So all the Jews were expelled from Rome. Well, among them were Priscilla and Aquila, and they went to Ephesus with the Apostle Paul. Who should come into the town but this man who was an incredibly eloquent orator? His name was Apollos. Apollos was a man who, had, who was a God-fearing man, a man who had incredible rhetorical skills, but he didn't know about Jesus very well. And so Paul said, this man, who was maybe a fledgling Christian, didn't know squat about the Bible. He needs some help because he's extraordinarily gifted. So Paul left, and he left Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus, and their responsibility was now to help train up this 
incredibly gifted man named Apollos. And Paul went on back to Jerusalem or back to um, Antioch. So now what happened next is now here was a person of extraordinary gifts but who didn't know the scriptures very well. So Priscilla and Aquila then were given the responsibility by God to ground him in sound doctrine. I know a bit about the history of this church. I've been reading some, and I know what you're like. You've been blessed. You have a deep, strong doctrinal foundation. You believe deeply in the word of God. It is the authoritative word from God. It is true in every way. You believe that, and this church has been built on that foundation. That's what happened next in the church of Ephesus. But then Paul came. The apostle Paul came back now to Ephesus. This is on his third missionary journey, and this time he stayed a long time. When he arrived in the church, he came and he saw that there were people in the church. Now remember, if you can do your math here, the church is now approximately 23 years old. Not really as a church. It's just like a, 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 a gathering of, of people, people who knew the gospel, had accepted Jesus Christ, but they were more familiar with John the Baptist. And so here's a group of people who were familiar with John the Baptist and they knew what sin was all about. They knew what repentance was all about. They knew that John the Baptist had said, the one who's going to come is the Messiah. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. And they probably knew that this one was named Jesus of Nazareth. They knew that Jesus had died on the cross. They knew that Jesus had been raised from the dead. But they didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit. Now, think of your life. You, all of these things you know, you know that you've, you've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know that you need a Savior. And then someone comes along and says, Jesus is that Savior. He died for your sins. And to substantiate his victory, he was raised from the dead. And you go, I, I need that. I want that. I believe that. But you don't know anything about the Holy Spirit. Where does that leave you? Kind of in a, in a bind. The Holy Spirit is the one that empowers us. The Holy Spirit is the one that enables us to realize that Christ is in us. We are in Christ. All of his riches are ours. All of these blessings that are our spiritual blessings in Christ are the work of the Holy Spirit. But what if you know nothing about the Holy Spirit? They didn't. And so Paul now comes into town and he says, um, let's talk about the Holy Spirit. They go, what? What's that? John, we know about John. We know about repentance. We know about Jesus. We know about his crucifixion, his resurrection, but we don't know this Holy Spirit stuff. And so now Paul starts teaching them. Where does he teach first? Well, he first goes to the synagogue. He's, the Bible tells us in Acts that he was there for about three months and then they kicked him out, which almost always happened to Paul. He gets kicked out of everywhere he goes. And so then what did he do? He went to a lecture hall, the hall of Tyrannus, in the town of Ephesus, and there he started to lecture. It's, the Bible tells us that he taught every day. Can you imagine his schedule? We know that he worked as a tent maker because he refused to take money. 
probably uh, the typical work day back then was 12 hours a day. Probably began at 6 in the morning. That's when the Roman work day began. Worked for maybe six hours. And then the rest of the day, he went to this lecture hall and he taught the people about the Word of God. It was there that he gave them a, a vision for who they were. It, it, this gospel is not just something that you sit on and you makes you really happy and then you go to heaven one day. It's much more than that. He gave them now a vision that from this place, this major city in the world, this gospel is going to go all over the world. It's going to change people's lives. It's going to change the culture. It's going to change everything. So then he gave them a sense of vision and mission. Because the gospel is not just about us. We are the heralds of the gospel. Our job is to tell people that there is good news out there, and this world desperately needs good news. And so now he gave them a vision for what their ministry was supposed to be, what, why God had chosen them to be the heralds of this good news. So that's what he did. Paul did this for a period of three years. But then he left. He left from Ephesus, which is in present-day Turkey, went across the waters to Greece, and there he did some ministry in Greece. And then he went from Greece back on his way back to Jerusalem. He decided he wanted to meet again with the leaders from the church of Ephesus. He decided not to go to Ephesus itself because if he went to Ephesus itself, he'd get involved in so many potlucks that he'd never get to Jerusalem. Everyone would have him over for dinner. And so he said, no, I'm not going to go to Ephesus. You need to come to me. So he picked a town down on the coast called Miletus, some miles south of Ephesus, and there the elders met with the apostle Paul. It's one of the most moving passages in all of the Bible. You should read it sometime. It's found in Acts chapter 20, these verses 13 to 38. Now look at the date. We're about 27 years after the gospel has first come to the city of Ephesus. And now what the Apostle Paul does is he, he talks just to the leaders of the church. This is what he says. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. And then he said this, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from among your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I have never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Whoa. Now, the churches had a pretty good ride. Uh, they had the, the best of possible teaching. They had the gospel, and the gospel was corrected, and then the gospel started to flourish, and they had a sense of vision and ministry. But now Paul issues a warning. 
says, you're in danger. What's the danger? Did you see the danger? It's actually threefold, but it's twofold. I, I like to call it um, wolves, weasels, and worms. Worms eat up your own soul. Wolves are outsiders who come in and destroy you. And weasels, they're insiders. He says, first of all, what's going to happen is there are going to be wolves that are going to come from the outside. And there were, in every church Paul went to, there were, there were people on the outside, wolves, who were coming into the churches that Paul had planted teaching error. They were teaching this. You want to know how you're acceptable to God? This is how you become acceptable to God. You accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and you follow the rules. If you don't follow the rules, you aren't saved. And here are the rules. No bacon with your eggs. Anyone have bacon with your eggs this morning? You are a sinner. You're out. You didn't worship yesterday? You're out. You have to worship on the Sabbath day. You didn't celebrate the three feasts, the great feasts? You're out. You have to follow the Mosaic law. Did you eat, eat some of that beef from Albertsons? You can't do that. You're out. They started to insert the law into the gospel. So there will be savage wolves that will come in and they will decimate the flock with error from the outside. But some of you are going to be the problem. And your problem is not error. Your problem is, look at it, ego. Because you are going to want to lead people not after Jesus, but after you. They're going to follow you. Why? What would ever cause somebody to want people to follow them rather than Jesus? Ego. Remember, I warned you. I warned you every single day. So what's the responsibility of a church? Watch out for error and ego. Those will kill the church. And the Apostle Paul says, that's where you are now on your cycle. But, so there's danger ahead from you. Now if you know what happens with the Apostle Paul from this point, he takes off from Miletus and goes to Jerusalem. As he's been making his way to Jerusalem, people have told him that the Holy Spirit had communicated to them that difficult times await the Apostle Paul. And Paul says, oh, I know that. The Holy Spirit told me too. He says, but that's not going to stop me one bit. So he then goes to Jerusalem. He's arrested in Jerusalem. They try to kill him. And then they transport him to Caesarea by the sea. He's imprisoned for two years. And that's where the last chapters of Acts take place. Then he appeals to Caesar, so they take him by ship to Rome. And that's where the book of Acts ends. So he's two years imprisoned in, in Caesarea, and then two years in Rome. And what happens now to the church? Here the great leader of the church is in prison. What does he do in prison? He's not done with this church. He now writes the book of Ephesians. Because now, this church that he had warned not long before, he knows now that this church needs to know because it's the most important church in the world at the time. They need to know what is a church all about? What are the resources that God has given us to be his church? And what are the responsibilities he has placed on us as his church? And so now he writes this matchless book. 
And it begins with this. Praise be to the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. By the way, we'll be pointing this out as we go through Ephesians. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, not a single command is ever given. In the last three chapters of the book of, of, of Ephesians, it's like a machine gun. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And it's beautiful because this is the way God works. God never tells us what to do until he convinces us of who we are. So God goes through three whole chapters, some of the most beautiful chapters in all the Bible, to tell God's people who you are. What do you do with a baby? The baby's born. Walk. Eat. Solid food. What? You don't do that till way down the line. What do you do with a baby? You love them. You hug them. You feed them. You speak tenderly to them. Why? You want them to know who they are, that they're loved, they're precious to you. You want them to connect with you. That's what you want. God does the same. It's, it's grievous to me because what we often do with new believers is we say, okay, here are the rules. That's not what God does. God doesn't say, here are the rules. God says, here's who you are. You have been blessed in with every spiritual blessing, now that you're in Christ, do you know who you are? Do you know how special you are? Do you know how precious to God you are? Do you know the resources God has put at your disposal? Do you know? Please, please, please understand. Paul pleads with them. But then, chapter 4, remember I said the last three chapters. Here's the thing. Now, you are Christ's prisoner. I urge you now to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. You've been called by him. Now live in light of who you are. So now the book of Ephesians is given to this church to build them up in who they are and what they're supposed to do as the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives them the resources and then their responsibilities. And then Paul doesn't leave them without any help. Paul is in prison now, but then he appoints his apostolic emissary, Timothy, to go to the church of Ephesus and now to pastor this church. He becomes the leader of this church. And not only is Timothy there, but there's very strong evidence in church history that John the Apostle is also there. So here now, this precious church has two of the greatest leaders who have ever lived on earth. Timothy and John are pastoring this church. And what are they doing? They're developing the leaders of the church. They want these leaders to be... To be under shepherds of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's, what, that's one of the most important things this body can do over the next number of months is pray for wisdom, discernment, for who God will choose to be the next shepherd of this church. It's probably one of the most important decisions you will make. But the most beautiful way is if God will bring you together and some person that he is bringing to this church together, the Holy Spirit will bring you together and you say, this is the one. And then God provides a good shepherd for you. Because that's what God did next in the life cycle of Ephesus is he brought a good shepherd to this church. And then the last we know is Jesus writes to the church of Ephesus. Now look at our date, 95 A.D. It's now 65 years after the gospel first came to this church, this city, the city of Ephesus, now the Lord Jesus Christ weighs in on the church. 
These are the, the seven letters written from Jesus to the churches in Asia Minor, the chief of these churches, and the first one mentioned is the church of Ephesus. Here's what it says. Who's the I? Jesus. He knows what he's talking about. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and you have endured hardships for my name and you have not grown weary. But, and, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. These were people who were inserting, um, fall, they were compromising with the culture in which they lived. Jesus says, I don't like that either. Now that's a good list. Can you imagine if Jesus came here to First Baptist Church and says, I know you guys. I know how hard you work for the cause of, of my cause. I, I know that, that you are faithful in this body. I know that you people serve faithfully for years and you get nothing in return. I know you do it for me and I am happy about it. I know that you have a nose and you sniff out error and you put an end to it. I know that and this is good. Thank you. But, I wish that word wasn't in the Bible, here it is yet. Yet, you don't love like you once did. What was it like when this, I wasn't here, none of you were here when this church began, but I'll bet you when this little fledgling group of believers came together, I'll bet they were fervent in their love for God and for one another. That's the way churches start. And, and when this church was just little and it was getting going, or when it went through a hard time and it was coming back to life again, I'll bet you there was a, a, a palpable sense of love here. Love for God. Love for one another. And here, this marvelous church, Jesus looks at it and points out all of these good things and yet says, but the love you once had for each other, it's, it's, it's dissipating. And so this is what he says. How do you correct it? Maybe it's your marriage. You started off, oh man, you were so lovey-dovey and all the rest of that, but then you became accustomed to each other's face. And now you're kind of like two ships passing in the night. You live together, and, but you don't, you don't treat each other like you once did. Or a church where, where it was just vital and everyone had a vital part and everyone served because this is the body of Christ that you've been blessed with and you were full of vigor for Christ and for each other. You loved each other. But then after a while you got big enough, oh, we, people don't need me, I can hide. You started to drift and it happens with businesses, it happens to governments, it happens to countries, it happens to everything. What do you do? Jesus gave the answer. Here are his words. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. And if you don't, you're dead. That's what he says. You're dead. I'll take your candlestick. Now, that's the way you deal with every single cycle of life that starts to get apathetic or indifferent. Let's say it's your marriage. What do you do if it's the things are starting to grow stale? 
Well, Jesus' answer is beautiful. He says, I'll bet you it wasn't stale at the beginning. No one has a stale romance at the very beginning. You can't spend enough time with each other. You listen intently to each other. You love each other. You respect each other. You say nice words to each other. Remember what it was like when you started. Then repent. Repent is simply a word which means you just turn around. That's all. And you do what you did at the beginning. That's how you fix almost everything. That's how you fix a church. That's how you fix our lives. That's how you fix a marriage. Maybe how you fix a business. You go back. Because you didn't build a good business by horrible customer service. At the beginning, you treated every single customer as if they were extremely special. But over time, when you become successful, you forget about that. Go back and do what you did at the beginning. And so I end with this. The most important thing is we have to go back to our first love. Here are the, the facets of the Ephesian church. Here are the, very, the, the cycle they went through. And the, the, the work of Jesus or his words to us are the same. How, how do we live as a church or as individuals? First of all, you have to act, accurately assess where you are. In my marriage, it, it, I'm not, I don't treat my wife the way I used to treat her. That's not right. That's not right. I, I'm not as active in the lives of my children as I once was when they were little. That's not right. I'm not involved in the church anymore because, ah, they don't need me. That's not right. Assess where you are. Then turn around and go back and do what you did at the beginning. Those are Christ's words. That's how you make the cycle work. You see, this is not how the cycle is supposed to work for Christians. This is how it's supposed to work. When we see we're starting to become apathetic and complacent, we go back fast. We go back to the basics quicker because that's a great place to live. I trust that we'll live there as well. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful church, your bride. And I pray that this church over these transition months would grow and would become stronger and but not just stronger, far more loving, more loving for, toward you and toward each other and toward this community and the people who don't know Jesus. And that this, would, this body would have a tremendous impact on Sheridan and to the uttermost parts of the world because of Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.